Andrew mentioned uh, right at the beginning that uh, we were looking faith, hope and love. And so as I move through uh, Luke 7, last uh, Tuesday we looked at faith. Today we're going to be focusing on hope. And as I thought about hope, I really like uh, Graham Bainan's explanation of hope as faith looking forward. Faith looking forward. And if you think about the logic of that, it actually makes some sense because as we noted on Tuesday uh, from Peter Jensen's Little Pearl about your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith. If you think about faith looking forward, then of course because our faith is focused on Christ, um, it's not only that we have certainty in the present, but because of who he is, what he is able to do, what he has done and what he promises he will do, we have certainty for the future. The passage I'm looking at this morning is uh, verse 11 on with the widow of Nain, verses 11 to 17 in Luke 7. And of course, as we look at this, um, we're looking at someone who is without hope at this point. But what we see particularly in this passage is Jesus at work. And we're reminded again that as we trust him, he is indeed the sum total of our hope. The situation in uh, Luke 7, 11 to 17 is a very sad one. Uh, it is the death of someone. Uh, and in one sense, I don't want to pass over that too quickly because death is something that impacts us all and we need to understand this widow's uh, situation, what she must have been feeling. Uh, as some of you know, I've done a, f a fair bit of work on death and bereavement with regard to the loss of Austra young Australians in the First World War. And it's the loss, loss ideas that I see in terms of the epitaphs that families chose for their headstones that really uh, emotionally impact me the most and particularly those written by mothers about the loss of their sons. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple to you and then I'm going to use one to actually link back to the passage. Uh, this one from a mother, gone and the light of my life gone with him. Or would that I had died and he had lived. Or a mother's heart lies buried here. And one which links to our passage, only son of a widowed mother deeply mourned. And as you read those epitaphs, you begin to understand something of the experience uh, of a mother who has lost uh, a son, in the case of the last one, an only son. How could you not be moved uh, by this? And what is interesting in this passage is, whereas Jesus responds to the words of the centurion, yes, they're mediated by, first of all, the Jewish elders and then by friends, here the woman does not speak, but Jesus engages with her because he deals with her situation, which he sees. And with that, I want to read the passage, uh, beginning at verse 11, if I can get my phone to work. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. 
He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Up to this point in Luke's account, uh, we read that Jesus has healed many. At Luke 4, verses 40, at verse 40, we're told that people brought to Jesus all who had all kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on them, he healed them. And here he is now at Nain, this town in Galilee, and his reputation has grown so much that there is a large crowd as well as his disciples with him. And here is he, as he comes to the town gate, a funeral procession is leaving the town and going to the burial place which had to be outside the town. For the dead were, of course, unclean according to Jewish law. And Luke tells us that this deceased man was a young man, the only son of a widow. You can imagine the scene. The wailing and crying of the mourners, it is incredibly sad. This woman has lost her husband. It seems she has only one son, and now she's lost him as well. We need to feel something of her grief, uh, because grief is something we will all experience in life. In my research, I was very much assisted by the work of Professor Beverly Raphael from the University of Newcastle, who is probably the most significant voice in Australia with regard to research into bereavement, grief and mourning. And as she looked at the various forms of loss that people experience, loss of uh, people, she felt that the loss of a young adult child is one of the hardest forms of grief for people to experience. And her thinking for this is quite interesting because she says those with young adult children often have unspoken expectations associated with their children as they think about the future. The sort of career they'll have, the sort of whether they'll marry and have children, all sorts of things that you have, you start to build expectations as a parent of an, a young adult child. And when so that comes to death, those expectations are taken away. That expected future evaporates. And this widow would have lost those expectations. But of course, in her case, there is more loss. With no husband or sons, her means of being provided for in this culture were gone. She'd be forced to rely on the charity of uh, distant relatives or neighbours. And we know from scripture that the life of a childless widow in that place was difficult. And that's why widows and orphans are singled out for special consideration in both the Old and the New Testament. There is the scene. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Jesus doesn't need words from her. He recognises her suffering, her despair. And the idea of his heart going out to her is here of compassion for, to take pity on someone. It's not a word used much by Luke in his writing. Uh, it occurs again when the Samaritan sees the badly injured man on the other side of the road in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he too has compassion. His heart goes out to this person. It's more than a simple emotional response to what you see. It's an emotional response, yes, but it causes you to act, to do something. 
And this is what Jesus is going to do. He says to her, don't cry. Which is an interesting thing to say to someone who has just experienced a loss, who is in deep distress. In similar circumstances, you would say, well, it's rather thoughtless or lacking in empathy. But Jesus' words are better understood as don't go on crying because there is a reason he says it. And he's going to give her a reason to cry no longer, but rather be filled with joy. And before she can utter a reply, before whether she intended to do so or not, Jesus acts. He moves quickly to the bier, the litter on which the corpse of the young man is being carried, and he touches it. Now that's an unusual thing to do. And those who were bearing the bier stood still at this um, because they would not have expected that to happen. Quite unusual. But that becomes insignificant. For Jesus addresses the body of the young man. Young man, I say to you, get up. And immediately, the dead youth sat up and began to talk. Imagine witnessing that. This wasn't the first opening of the eyes of a resuscitated person, the first stirrings of consciousness. No, he's up and mobile and talking. And I love the comment uh, by Marcus Lone, after whom this hall is named, when he wrote about this particular little episode and he said... Jesus spoke with a voice that wakes the dead. He spoke as one who knew the dead would hear, and he that was dead sat up and spoke. And if you've heard Marcus Lyon speak, you can imagine him saying those three sentences. Jesus spoke with a voice that wakes the dead. And the response of the crowd indicates they knew they had seen an incredible miracle. And they were filled with awe and they praised God for what had occurred. Jesus had acted and restored this young man to life and to his mother. Biblical scholars have noted that the response of the crowd, a great prophet has appeared among us, is most probably due to not only the act itself, but because of its similarity, the raising of the widow's son by the great prophet Elijah. Elisha also raised a dead youth in 2 Kings 4, but I think here it's particularly referring back to 1 Kings 17, but here is one greater than Elijah. Whereas Elijah had to pray to God and stretch himself upon the body of the boy three times before the, the boy was revived, Jesus merely speaks the word of command and the dead youth is raised. And again, note the response of the crowd. A great prophet has come among us and then God has come to help his people. It's interesting at this point because there's a shift in the narrative. Luke does not dwell on the joy of the mother at receiving her son back, although overjoyed she must have been. Now Luke now refocuses our attention particularly to see the one who really matters here because here in the person of Jesus, the crowd, believing God has sent one like Elijah to do marvellous things, ironically state more than they intend. God has come to help his people. Indeed, in the person of the Lord Jesus, God has indeed come to help his people. It brings to mind the words of the prophet recalled in Matthew's Gospel, that the virgin's son would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And here was God in the person of Jesus, doing what only God could do, speaking to the creation, speaking to the dead youth, and raising him back to life. Well, there you go. There's the scene. There's the situation. But I want to have a look at this and just reflect upon it a little because there are a number of things that 
you can draw from this passage. Firstly, and importantly, it reminds us that Jesus is compassionate and loving. He cares deeply, for he loves deeply. The cross tells us of that, the depth of that love and concern. We know he didn't die for his sin, he died for ours. He himself said he didn't come to be served, although he, he deserved to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He is our good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We marvel at his other person's centeredness, even as he's dying on the cross, an agonising death. His loving partial heart reaches out to the thief dying alongside him, who, recognising that Jesus didn't deserve this, asked him to remember when he came to his kingdom. And Jesus, at that point, says, I tell you the truth. Today they'll be with me in paradise. And this same Jesus has promised he'll never leave us or forsake us if he is our Saviour and Lord. And he's given his spirit to dwell in us, to comfort and assure us of his love and provision. He is with us continually. And as Roman 8 reminds us, nothing can separate us from his love. There is so much more that can be said about the compassion and love of Jesus for his people that the resurrection at Nain gives us a glimpse of. He loves people with a love that lasts for eternity. And he loves us in every circumstance of life. That's what his cross tells us. But secondly, this account reveals Jesus is the one who can reverse death. And of course this raises the question of his identity, of who he is. You see that right through the synoptics. And the New Testament makes it clear that he is the one who gives and sustains life in general. After the passage you read this morning in Acts 2, in Acts 3, when the Apostle Peter is preaching to the crowd at Solomon's colonnade in the temple, he says, you killed the author of life. This is in the context of that beggar being healed in the name of Jesus by Peter at the gate beautiful. And if you remember what happened, this, this man is healed and he goes walking and leaping and praising God and the people are astonished and Peter sums up what must have been going through their mind saying this man was healed in the name of Jesus and the faith that comes from him. Yes, the man you killed who is himself the author of life and this man's restoration is, is done through him because he is now in heaven. God has raised him from the dead, says Peter. He is now in heaven until that a time when he will come and restore everything as God has promised. But thirdly, this little incident reminds us that Jesus has a voice that wakes the dead. A restoration of physical life is evident in this miracle at Nain, yet as marvellous as this resurrection is, of this young man, it's limited, for it's only for this life. This young man will eventually die as, as his contemporaries did, as we will. There is physical death, as we see in this account of the widow's son, and there is spiritual death. When Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus, he reminded them that before they became Christians, before they became followers of the Lord Jesus, even though they were physically alive, they were dead in their transgressions and sins, which they used to live in when they followed the ways of the world. And as sinners, they were spiritually dead, cut off from God, and thus objects of his wrath, his anger. However, Paul continues, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. You see, as the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is preached, he, the incarnate word, speaks. And those who respond in repentance and faith, who are spiritually dead, are raised to life. His voice in the gospel raises the spiritually dead and brings them to life. So no longer dead to God and thus cut off from him, but alive to him, reconciled to him and now members of his family. You see, the miracle of the raising of this widow's son at Nain is a marvellous thing, and I don't want to value it. It's miraculous. However, the raising of a person who is spiritually dead, cut off from God, not knowing him or seeking him to serve him, that's even greater. And brothers and sisters, that's the privilege we have of being involved in, of seeing that work, of seeing Christ bring people back to life as we proclaim the gospel. But there's one more thing in this passage. For the raising of this man at Nain, of course, brings to mind another resurrection, a glorious resurrection, that of Jesus himself, who as the firstborn from the dead has inaugurated a new wonderful era of forgiveness, of reconciliation and so much more. His resurrection reminds us that a time is coming when those who are spiritually alive in Christ will have their bodies raised physically as well. And these resurrected bodies will no longer be weak and subject to decay, but suited for eternity, fitted for eternity, for eternal life with God. And this, of course, will happen when the Lord Jesus returns to judge the world and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. The end of the book of Revelation tells us how wonderful it will be for the old order of things will cease. No more tears, no more suffering, no more decay, no more death. That's why I think this passage is about hope. Yes, it focuses on death, but in Jesus raising this young man from death to life, it reminds us of the fact that we are dealing with someone who can do that and who is himself the risen Lord. I might have mentioned this before, but it's so good I'm going to mention it again. About 15 years ago, I was in conversation with the former Archbishop of Sydney, Donald Robinson, and it was on my pet topic of war grave epitaphs. And we were talking about this in a phone conversation, and I was feeling a little bit cheeky. And after we'd talked for about 10 minutes, I said to him, so what would you choose for your epitaph? Which is a bit, yeah, a bit impertinent, isn't it, to ask somebody that? And there was a pause, and then he answered, waiting for the resurrection. And he said, that would be a very Christian epitaph. Waiting for the day of resurrection is the hope of all those who belong to the Lord Jesus. See, the raising of this young man at Nain tells us much about Jesus. He is compassionate and caring. We must not forget that. He's not detached from us. He's not impersonal. He is deeply concerned for us. The cross reminds us of that. We see that he is able to raise the dead because although a man, he is also God. He speaks with the authority of the creator and the creation listens to him. And his voice in the words of the gospel raises the spiritually dead, forgiving them their sins and assuring them of his presence and love forever. And this Jesus promises a day is coming when there will be a bodily resurrection 
and those who love him will be clothed with glorious bodies suited for eternity. Last time I finished with a hymn, or the words of a hymn, and I thought as I was lying in bed this morning, uh, thinking about this, what would I use? And I thought, I must choose something that has a modern tune, just to satisfy Andrew. But I thought, one hymn which really focuses on this is, of course, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the ale. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, I may I then be hidden in found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And of course there's the refrain, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Because our hope is focused on Christ, just like our faith. That's why I think Graham Bainan is right. That hope is not wishful thinking, but faith looking forward because of the certainty of who Christ is and the certainty of his promises. I'm going to pray now, and I'm going to use the words of Paul, the Apostle Paul, from Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.